This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. I've developed a relationship with places and monuments and landmarks and street signs. Certain sites are cliched or understandable, admiring the sadness and the fury of the skyline or basking in the glow of the brilliant lights enveloping the Empire State Building. I also get enormous pleasure viewing things I think of as mine, a 70s style rainbow decal in the window of a townhouse on West 13th Street a wooden owl on the awning of a building on East 29th Street, a windmill on Hudson Street I used to think was a vertical helicopter, and the old economy foam sign on Allen Street in the East Village. These things, of course, are not really mine, but somehow I imagine I have a secret relationship with them. To me, they are not really things. They all have private lives and little souls. To me, they are real. My favorite thing to behold in all of Manhattan was actually on the street that I live. It was a big bush of white peonies. It lived in a small, messy garden in front of an apartment building that was once rumored to be a crack house. But every year in the depths of March, little buds would poke up through the thawing earth, and every day I would watch the drama of these peonies unfurl. First came the fringy black stems, then the leaves would turn green, then they would spurt forth tiny, perfectly round buds, and then seemingly overnight, the buds would turn white, and voila, they would open, bursting open, in the most fantastically glamorous way. It was magical and mysterious, and it made me very, very happy. Watching it year after year, I often wondered how the bush got there. Who planted it? Did itself sow? I desperately wanted to know. One day, some years ago, while walking my dogs, I bumped into my neighbor, Kathy, who has lived on our block for 40 years. She has a dog my dogs love. As our pups frolicked together on the sidewalk, I realized we were in front of the house with the peonies. I asked Kathy, do you know who planted those flowers? She told me she did and recalled a story about a little girl who was selling seeds to raise money for her grade school and how someone in the crack building bought a package of seeds and planted the entire pack in front of the house. The little girl wasn't a little girl anymore, and she had moved away some time ago, as did the person who had planted the seeds. Together we nodded, admiring their long-lasting handiwork, and went our separate ways. Last summer, walking home from work in the pink and purple August twilight, I realized that the peony bush was no longer there. It was gone. There wasn't a hole where the plant had been. There wasn't a splattering of dirt or debris. The bush simply disappeared. It was as if it had never been there at all, as if it hadn't been real. I was devastated. The nature of what is real is a confounding concept. Philosophers and scientists alike have attempted to define what is real along with the nature of the consciousness that defines what is real. Plato maintained that two distinct levels of reality exist, the visible world of sights 
and sounds which we live in, and in the, and the intelligible world he referred to, referred to as forms, which stands above the visible world and gives it meaning. Plato believed that the idea of things is the only true reality, and that actual things are only the appearance of reality. He believed that in our everyday experiences we suffer from the illusion that the things and objects around us constitute the ultimate reality. Furthermore, he believed that our ideas not only reveal our subjective inner states, but the true nature of reality itself. So I had to wonder, where were the peonies? How could they have disappeared without a trace? Could someone have been so cruel as to steal the bush and clean up after the theft? My mind raced. Could I put up a missing peonies poster? Were other people missing the flowers? And I couldn't help but ponder in sadness. Were the peonies ever real? The last couple of months, the world has been witness to events that have shaken me to the core and disgusted and frightened me. Seeing the private parts of Britney Spears was sadly bewildering. But all through the experience, I remained skeptical. This couldn't possibly be happening. This couldn't be real. But as the pictures kept coming and Brittany herself admitted to the authenticity of the photos, I had to accept the fact that, yes, indeed, this was real. Then on the other end of the reality spectrum was the broadcasted cell phone footage of the hanging of Saddam Hussein. It was with a combination of revulsion and curiosity that I clicked on the link from viral videos and watched a man who looked like the former dictator fall through the primitive wooden gallows to a gruesome death. Again, I was skeptical. This couldn't be happening. This couldn't possibly be real. How could we be witnessing capital punishment via footage broadcasting from a cell phone? But as both the Iraqi and U.S. governments admitted to the authenticity of the video, I had to accept the fact that, yes, indeed, this, too, was real. Privacies of every sort are now inscribed with an impression on our culture. Things once thought free from this, even opposed to it, clandestine body parts, intimate sexual behavior, moments of life and death, find it ever more difficult to retain autonomy in the face of things such as reality television, YouTube, and MySpace. Things we now romantically and proudly call real or user-generated. But we have become sensitized to this as well, because now, at the very same time, smaller and smaller temporal and physical crevices are being packed with the messages of this so-called reality, or what we believe is real. Last Sunday, I was last-minute holiday shopping, my arms loaded with big bags of holiday presents and wrapping paper. As I was making my way home, I passed the spot where my beloved peonies once resided, and I stopped short. In a spot near to where the peonies once regaled was a new bush of blooming white peonies. I couldn't believe it. I approached the plant with care, and once again I was skeptical. This couldn't be happening. This couldn't possibly be real. As I neared the bush, I put down my bags and took off my gloves. I reached out to touch the peonies and suddenly realized they weren't real. Someone had put a plastic peony plant near where the real bush had once lived. One imaginative neighbor was remembering the missing peonies, and this was their memorial. I smiled and suddenly felt hopeful that a fake peony bush could indeed be a very real testament to what is most real in our hearts, 
and in our minds. Welcome to Season 4, the Season 4 premiere of Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guests today are the authors Joyce Gladwell and Malcolm Gladwell. Before we get started with our interview, let me tell you a little bit more about them. Joyce Gladwell was born in Jamaica and graduated with a BA in Psychology and Anthropology from University College of London in 1956. Her book, Brown Face Big Master, was first published in 1969 by InterVarsity Press in London. Since 1969, Joyce has lived in Canada with her husband, Graham, a professor of mathematics at the University of Waterloo. Joyce was a marriage and family therapist for 20 years and has three children and two grandchildren, her youngest of which is writer Malcolm Gladwell. Malcolm graduated from the University of Toronto Trinity College with a degree in history. He was born in England, grew up in rural Ontario, and now lives in New York City. From 1987 to 1996, he was a reporter with the Washington Post, where he covered business, science, and then served as the newspaper's New York City bureau chief. He has been a staff writer with the New York Magazine since 1996. He has won a National Magazine Award, and in 2005, he was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People. He's the author of two wonderful best-selling books, The Tipping Point, How Little Things Make a Big Difference, and Blink, The Power of Thinking Without Thinking. Welcome, Joyce and Malcolm. Thank you so much for being here. Happy to be here. Thank you. So, Joyce, I'd like to start with a question for you. Um, is it true that Malcolm had a poster of Ronald Reagan in his room as a young man? I'm afraid so, yes. Malcolm, <laughs> why Ronald Reagan? Well, everyone has to rebel as a child, uh -huh. and an appropriate form of rebellion in Canada in the, in the uh, in late 1970s, early 1980s, was to be a conservative. Uh -huh. I, you know, like all acts of rebellion, it passed, and I returned to sanity. Uh -huh. But, um, no, it's true. I had a little moment there. What did you like most about Mr. Reagan? Well, just that he was, um, that he was, uh, he was, uh, that was an unorthodox position to take in Canada uh -huh. at that time. I liked him because he was, he was different. I mean, he was, um, I think, I think, I don't think it goes beyond that in okay. a substantial way. So, Joyce, what made you and your husband, Graham, decide to settle down in Canada? Uh... A number of reasons. One is that Canada is halfway between England and Jamaica. I was uh, uh, many five thousand miles from home in Jamaica while I lived in England with Graham, mm -hmm. and I think perhaps he felt, in all fairness, we should be halfway between the two native countries. I see. Uh, and uh, also, um, England was getting crowded. Oh, it, it always has been getting crowded, and it still is. And um, and Canada seemed like a place with open spaces, a good place to bring up one's family and to, to seek advancement in, in work. Now, Malcolm, in an interview with the New York Times, you stated that you hated being this reductive, but an awful lot of your ideology is just Canadians, that Canadians like small, modest things, um, and this is a quote from you. We don't believe in boasting. We think the world is basically a good place. We're pretty optimistic. We think we ought to take care of each other. And it so happens that to be a Canadian in America is to seem quite radical. So what is what is most radical about being Canadian in America? Well, it, it, all those things that I mentioned are things that um, uh, for at least some of the last few years seem to have been um, absent from American um, 
political life, ideas that have been increasingly out of favor. Um, you know, it, it, this country has always stood for individualism, but I feel like we've been um, become even more individualistic and more um, uh, convinced of the idea that um, everyone needs to um, look out for themselves and um, and more hostile to the notion that there is some kind of uh, that we all have some kind of collective responsibility for each other. Um, you know, the um, if, if the so so I so I feel like being a being a Canadian, what being a Canadian represents has become uh, more and more outside the mainstream um, over the last uh, uh, six or seven years in this country. Um, so I suppose that's the that's what I was getting at with that comment. Mm -hmm. What is it about Canadians that, that make them so much more polite than, than Americans? Because I've heard that over and over. I have a lot of Canadian friends that spend a lot of time in Canada, and that sort of seems the one common denominator, that Canadians are more polite than Americans. Um, Although probably almost anybody's more polite than Americans. So. Well, why don't you ask my... I'd be curious to hear what my mother has to say about that first, and then okay. I'll, I'll chime in. Great. Do you have any thoughts on that? That's a large black hole to try to <laughs> generalize about why people are different. Uh, it's so catching if you're living in a community. I myself, um, uh, when I come into a Canadian society, I feel different because I come from a society in Jamaica where we are very direct and much more open and straightforward with each other. Whereas in Canada, one is reserved, one is tentative, uh, and very considerate of other people's feelings, almost going too far in that direction. And I, I just sense that if you come into our community where that is the norm, it catches on. I don't know where it started in Canada. I wish I did. I wish I could understand. Maybe it was because of the nature of the people who immigrated from Scotland and England. Mm. And... Uh, and who were also very quite religious, oh. and maybe the, the wherever the, the level of the class in society from which they came determined these qualities, and they just they multiplied and caught it from each other. Well, I'd like to um, pick up this conversation when we come back from our break. Uh, I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to the Season 4 premiere of Design Matters with Debbie Melman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Melman, and my guests today are the authors Joyce Gladwell and Malcolm Gladwell. We will be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Four oh ones, stock, mortgage, retirement, wealth. We cover it all. Voice America Business. Have you ever had a bad day and wish someone could come along and change it at the flip of a switch? Do you dream of living the life of wealth, great relationships, and the perfect job, but don't know where to start? Then tune into The Winner's Attitude with corporate trainers, motivators, authors, and hosts, Jeff and Val G. No difficult strategies or complicated keys. Jeff and Val present a powerful and effective technology to switch your operating system to create the most amazing life. It has been said that winners have simply formed the habit of doing amazing things. Winners know how to activate that switch and so can you the winner's attitude with jeff and val g broadcast each friday at 8 a.m pacific 11 a.m eastern on the voice america business channel the winner's attitude switch me on You live for the first in your child's life. 
But how do you cope with the first that come after your child is diagnosed with cancer? CureSearch.org connects you to the doctors and scientists whose collaborative research has turned childhood cancer from a nearly incurable disease to one with an overall cure rate of 78%. CureSearch.org. You're not as alone as you feel. Brought to you by CureSearch and the Ad Council. With 55 million blogs and counting, blogging is no longer just for anxiety-ridden teenagers or unemployed pundits with too much time on their hands. Companies are joining the blogosphere by the dozens. Corporate blogging is no longer optional. But how do you take your first steps into the blogosphere? On the Corporate Blogging Show, host corporate and CEO blogging consultant Debbie Weil, author of the Corporate Blogging Book, talks in practical terms, no techie talk allowed, with some of the savviest practitioners of this new way of marketing and communicating online. Online. Learn how you can incorporate all the newest social media tools, including blogs, podcasts, and online video, into your website. And have fun while you're doing it. Yes, this wild new weekly world of blogs is supposed to be fun. The Corporate Blogging Show with Debbie Weil. Broadcast each Tuesday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Business Channel. The Corporate Blogging Show, your no-nonsense guide to the blogosphere. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.19 Eastern Time, and you are listening to the Season 4 premiere of Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guests today are the authors Joyce Gladwell and Malcolm Gladwell. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Malcolm or Joyce, our phone lines are open. Please call one 866 472 5790. And before the break, we were talking about the nature of difference in people from different places. And Joyce, you were talking a little bit about uh, what was the difference that you perceived in people in Jamaica, people in Canada, um, people in the United States. Do you want to finish the, the thought that you were sharing with us? You're speaking, Joyce. Uh, Joyce? Yes. Uh, well, I think I have finished. I think um, I'm speculating. I know wildly about something I know very little about. How did this all start? How did Canadians come to be Canadians? And how did Jamaicans come to be Jamaicans? And how did they come to be different? What I do know is that when you come to live among other people, you begin to catch their characteristics. And that is how they persist in the society, I suppose. Joyce, your book, um, Brown Face, Big Master, was first published in 1969. Um, it's a very candid, very revealing story of your life and how you dealt with some of the major social issues of our time, race, color, relationships, mixed marriage, and your search for God. Um, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about the title, Brown Face, Big Master? Brown Face uh, refers to the color of my skin. Uh, in Jamaica, people are very conscious of differences in shade and skin tone. And uh, to, uh, in the present world, if you have any, uh, if you are brown-skinned or you have any measure of African ancestry, you're black. But in Jamaica, we made great distinctions between people who were black, people who were brown, and people who were white. And... Um, and so to make that distinction is to 
say something about your background, about your your ancestry, about the mixed fact that you were mixed race, and also about your position socially in the in the society. So that was brown face. Big master is a word used in Jamaica to refer to God. I know it also has connotations of a slave master. Mm-hmm. But God as big master is not seen as a, a, a cruel or demanding or overbearing person, but just as someone greater. Now, when the book when the book first came out, I know it was serialized in in the Jamaica newspaper, and then the book actually sold out its entire print run. Yes. Um, what made the publisher decide not to print it again? Uh, I've often wondered whether they had reasons at different levels. Um, I think the reason they gave me slips me at the moment. Um, I think they probably found it too expensive, or they thought that it wouldn't sell quite so well. I'm I'm not sure. They didn't have a very good reason for um, for not not continuing. Now I understand that at the time, um, some books, some parts of the book um, were banned um, in in the serialization because of a sexual encounter that you describe in the book. Yes, Indivarsity Press is a religious uh, press from InterVarsity Christian Movement in England, and uh, they had a wide distribution in parts of the Commonwealth, um, namely Ireland and South Africa. Well, South Africa is not the Commonwealth, but they they did they had distribution there. In South Africa, it was banned because of the mixed marriage between Graham and myself, and uh, in Ireland, it was banned because people were very squeamish about the um, attempted rape uh, uh, by, by the man on the boat. Doctor, yes. Um, now, you married white men at a time when multiracial marriages were, were very unusual. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that, if you can? Uh, from what angle were you thinking, Debbie? From emotionally. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, <laughs> Just I emotionally. Think, yes. A brown-skinned Jamaican is well-primed to marry somebody white. There is no difficulty there from that point of view. My father, in fact, would have passed for white had he lived in, in, in England, for example. And some of my relatives were white. And there was pressure in Jamaica because color and class were associated and you upper class were white and lower class were black. The pressure was on to improve the social status of your family by marrying white. And yet, and yet, I well, how did your your parents feel about it? I know that your husband's parents were not happy initially. Yes, Graham's parents were not happy, and my parents were extremely happy. Um, Joyce, we have a, a caller that's been on the line for, for a while, and I'm, I'm going to ask that um, he come and join us, and then I'd like to continue asking you questions about the book. Um, but Gregory, welcome. Thank you so much for continuing listening to Design Matters. And Congratulations on, on season four. Thank you. Thank you. I love the peony shrine story. I hope you made a wish on it. <laughs> I took a picture <laughs> of the uh, plastic peonies. So <laughs> have that all for, for all of perpetuity. Um, uh, but you have a question for I Joyce? I do. I have a question for Joyce, Good. actually. Um, I'm curious to know, in, in, in being a uh, marriage and family therapist, did you ever find yourself in a situation where you gave advice um, to 
one of your patients uh, about a situation, and then you found yourself in a similar situation in your relationship or in your child rearing, and, and you did completely the opposite, or you didn't follow your own advice. You're twisting my memory, Gregory. <laughs> <laughs> it's I quite a question, Gregory. I guess six months off is giving you a lot of time to think. Do you want the specifics, Gregory, or you just want to no, get just, yes Did you ever no? find yourself in that, in that situation and then later think, God, I gave that person that advice and I didn't even take it myself? The awareness that I cannot follow my own advice is certainly... <laughs> did you ever throw that in her face, over. Malcolm? No. <laughs> <laughs> We're not face throwers. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's because you're Canadian and you're polite. I know. I know. <laughs> Any other questions, Gregory? Uh, Was your question answered to your to your satisfaction? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just, that's I'm just I'm just yanking Joyce's chain <laughs> because I know she's found herself in that situation because she's human. Um, Malcolm, I'm curious. I don't know how long you've lived in New York, but um, I've lived in New York a very long time, probably almost 25 years. And um, the New York today is not the New York I came to, and so much of what made New York New York to me doesn't exist anymore. Um, and in just listening to Debbie talk about things like the economy candy sign, I mean, these are all things that we as New Yorkers cherish. But so many things in the city that made the city the city, like the Plaza Hotel going condo, those are sort of inconceivable things. Do you have any theory? And, and it's natural, the course of passage of time, that all mm-hmm. things will change to a degree. But it seems like it's at an accelerated rate. Do you have any theory as to why that is? Well, it's the the. I mean, obviously, the city's gotten so much um, wealthier in the last, you know, remarkably wealthier. Like we forget that you know, as recently as the '60s, um, the city was considered a kind of poor cousin um, to the suburbs and to other parts of the country, and now that has been reversed. But um, you know, it's it's funny that the the, the way in which the city the city's um, physical um, uh, nature changes. It's very different from the way it's um, uh, it's uh, the people of the city have changed. So the city has become the people have become far more diverse, and um, uh, you know we we internationalized Queens. We've you know we've changed the face of Central Brooklyn. We've done all these things that have made the city uh, much more kind of fascinating and engaging um, in terms of its people. At the same time as we've homogenized, it strikes me a lot of the physical structure of the city and turned, you know, large parts of Manhattan into um, large luxury condos. It's a strange thing that you can um, you can reinvigorate the people even as you um, as you kind of um, flatten out um, and destroy some of the character of the of the physical part of the city. Right. Well thank you very much. Thank you Joyce very much. Thank you for Thanks, calling Debbie. Gregory. Nice to hear your voice again. Thank you Bye bye. Um, Malcolm, you recently quoted your mother's book on your blog um, at MalcolmGladwell.com in referencing an experience that she had when you were a child. And you quoted her in reference to the series of pieces that you wrote about stereotyping and racism. Mm -hmm. This is a passage that you wrote, and it is followed by a passage from your mom's book. So you wrote, my parents are living outside Southampton, and I'm just adding England so people know that it's not Long Island, Uh, settled finally after a tumultuous first few years of marriage. It is hard to read this, I think, and not acknowledge the kind of strength and effort necessary to overcome the terrible power of name-calling. And then this from the book. Um, This is written by Joyce Gladwell. Three months later, on a Sunday afternoon, I stood at my front door waving to Graham and the older children as they set off for a walk. I was staying behind with the baby to rest. At that moment, a boy went by on a bicycle and shouted at me, Nigger. 
Quickly I glanced at Graham and the children, hoping they had not heard him, and then I turned indoors, my heart and mind in turmoil. A poisoned arrow had found its mark, a ghost from the past had visited me, and I was unprepared and vulnerable. The picture I had built up of an accepting community vanished. Once again I lived in an insecure world where thorns were waiting to wound in unexpected places. Where was the mastery of myself I thought I had gained, the freedom from concern about color and race? I was hurt and I was angry and I had to find expression for my raging feelings. Aggressively I came to God with more boldness than I ever had done before. Malcolm, you were too young to remember this, I imagine. If you're, oh, yeah. you're the baby being referenced in the yeah. passage. So Joyce, do you still experience that kind of racism? No. I, I but I think... Um, oh, producers, please give me another minute before the music. Thank you. Uh, no, I, I, I don't. I think I've lived in the same place. I chose to live in a small town in, in, in Canada, uh, which is largely populated by Mennonites who have a wonderful reputation for acceptance. And where I became quite well known because of my book was published when I first came here. And now I have grown old in this town and I've accepted as part of the background and <laughs> these things just don't happen anymore. Malcolm, um, tell me why you decided to, pr to uh, print that passage on your blog. Well, it was in the context of, there was that huge controversy over Michael Richards yes. using the word nigger. Mm -hmm. And um, it struck me that we were, people have lost sight, I think, of the power of words like that. And I just remembered that um, extraordinary passage from my mother's book and wanted to share it with people and to remind them that these are not... Um, these phrases cannot be, these words cannot be thrown around casually, um, that they have consequences, you know, um, dependent on the, the, the way in which the context in which they're used. But um, they're, um, I don't know, I just, I, I just it, it, whenever, there are so many of these wonderful um, moments in my mother's book, and I, um, I love whenever I can to kind of share them with people who haven't read the, um, the entire thing, and that, was, that struck me as such a, a, a wonderful opportunity. Well, I'd like to talk about that uh, a little bit more, and I'd like to talk about your reprinting your mother's book and the experience of that, um, and then questions about your books as well once we get back from the break. Um, I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to the Season 4 premiere of Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guests today are the authors Joyce Gladwell and Malcolm Gladwell. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business. The economy and financial markets continue to expand in both their size and complexity, but being able to anticipate changes in the markets for housing, jobs, and financial assets remains a crucial ingredient to our financial well-being. On the economy and the markets, with economist, investment strategist, portfolio manager, and host, Doug Cliggett, utilizes his 25 years of experience with that of his highly informed guests to provide clear, reasoned explanations of current events. To navigate the markets that influence our lives every day of the week, tune into The Economy and the Markets with Doug Cleggett, broadcasting each Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. The economy and the markets. Clear thoughts in a complex world. 
200 years ago, Lewis and Clark discovered the West. That is, if you don't count the millions of American Indians who discovered it first. Because Lewis and Clark left one civilization only to find dozens of others that, despite everything, are still here today. Walk with Lewis and Clark at lewisandclark200.org and see what you discover, because their trail winds through us all. This is a public service message of the National Council of the Lewis and Clark Bicentennial, the Missouri Historical Society, and the Ad Council. If you're looking to improve sales results, increase revenue, acquire new customers, or just retain existing ones, listen to Sales Talk with nationally recognized sales and customer relationship management consultant, speaker, sales trainer, and author, Russ Lombardo. On Sales Talk, Russ provides insights and knowledge about today's best-selling techniques and methodologies. Learn about the latest sales-related software and tools to help organize your efforts for achieving more efficiency and get a better understanding of what services are available to improve sales results. On Sales Talk, Russ Lombardo and his expert guests get down to brass tacks and talk about what's needed today to succeed in sales. Whether you're a sales manager, sales professional, business owner, or entrepreneur, you'll benefit from the business insights, experience, and knowledge. Sales Talk with Russ Lombardo broadcast each Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Sales Talk with Russ Lombardo. Insights, experience, and knowledge at the click of a mouse. The bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Live from the Empire State Building, you are listening to the Season 4 premiere of Design Matters with Debbie Melman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Melman, and my guests today are the authors Joyce Gladwell and Malcolm Gladwell. If you want to join our conversation or if you have a question for Malcolm or Joyce, our phone lines are open. You can call 1-866-472-5790. And prior to the break, we were talking about Joyce's book, Brown Face, Big Master. And Malcolm, you republished the book several years ago. What made you decide to do that? Um, well, one was that it had been out of print. Um, as my mother said, you know, it, 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 um, the original publishers, for entirely mysterious reasons, stopped, just didn't do another edition, even though the first one sold out. Um, and um, so that seemed wrong. Um, and also, I, I, you know, books, books are ugly. Um, we have people, we give people books to read, and they, you know, at the, in the best of occasions, they move us emotionally, and they, um, they interest us, and they educate us, and we hang on to them, and we put them on a bookshelf. But the amount of time and attention that goes into producing the book is trivial. Um, you know, there's more attention paid to the design of a cornflakes package than a book. <laughs> and that seems... Yeah. Don't pers- you the right person about that? <laughs> so, so, I mean, you know that, yes. Um, so it, it seems so odd that we would, that books which are things that we cherish um, should be so indifferently produced. And so I thought well, it would be wonderful to do a version of my mother's book um, that was beautiful. Um, and so I gave it to my friend Josh Leberson in helicopter, um, who did this um, uh, special edition, um, which is a work of art. It is an absolutely beautiful, beautifully designed book. Um, are you going to republish this limited edition? I know that. that I mean, we can do anything we want in this world, and so <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I think that so long as. Um, as uh, as uh, there, uh, you know, I think it would be, might be a really fun project to do. Um, 
But I just, I just think that um, there's also another strange thing about books is that the sense that we have that they expire, you know, that they go out of print, mm-hmm. um, as if uh, a book, a book's message is only meaningful for three or four or five years, which again is um, silly. Um, the best books are timeless, mm-hmm. um, and so um, that was the kind of thinking behind republishing it. Well, I understand that when you were uh, a little boy, Malcolm, that you won a writing competition for a story in which you interviewed God. So, um, first of all, Joyce, is that true? Did he he win a competition? It was indeed. We were delighted that he won the competition, but for a long time he kept hidden from us the subject matter of that essay he wrote. Why is that? Malcolm, why did you tell why, why did you keep it a secret? I have no idea. Do you remember the interview? What made you decide to interview God, and what did he have to say? I, you know, I have very little. I have a very poor memory in general, so I, I don't really remember. I think it was a. Um, I do. Oh, you do. Yeah. <laughs> then you should ask my mother. <laughs> Hence the uh, <laughs> double teaming here. <laughs> uh, Go ahead. <laughs> he, he was challenging God because he he pointed out that God seemed to favor the poor and and not like the rich. Really? He challenged God on that point, yes. Is this bringing up any sudden recognition, no, I, Malcolm? There, no, I don't remember this. I, <laughs> it, there was some, the, yeah, there was, it was something about, um, about God's admission policies to heaven being discriminatory. I think that mm-hmm. there was some argument. It was kind of a political satire, I think, at the time. Uh-huh. Um, you know, there was a great deal in the air about affirmative action. Um, I think perhaps that's what was motivating me. I was a you know, uh, uh, quite fascinated at the time by American political debates. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. now, Joyce, did you have the sense, your, did you or your husband have the sense when Malcolm was growing up that he was sort of poised for fame and fortune? No, not at all. I would <laughs> not have said fame and fortune. I, I enjoyed him so much that I wasn't looking ahead very far. I was just enjoying the delightful child that, I've, that, I, that, that, that had come into our life. Uh, he was, he provoked mirth just by being who he was, by the way he moved, by the way he was made, by his his eyes and his, his hair. <laughs> <laughs> That's the hair. <laughs> and then I, I also had the practice of writing things down that, that they said, that, that my children said from time to time. And um, in that way I preserved memories of, of what I enjoyed most about them. Um. We have a caller. Um, we have another caller. Caller Jennifer from Connecticut. Thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi. Thank you. Um, I have a question for for Malcolm and his mother, which is actually uh, goes nicely with your last qu- question, Debbie. Oh, good. Um, first of all, Malcolm, thank you so much for the books you're giving us. <laughs> They're just really amazing and getting people to look at the world in a whole new way. Thank you. Um, and that's kind of a provocative thing to say, and I'm, I'm just curious if, um, Joyce, as you raised Malcolm, is it surprising to you that <clears throat> as a grown-up he's able to um, kind of look at the world and observe things that everyone sees every day and uh, put a new spin on it and make people see the world in a different way? And Malcolm, are, are you surprised based on how you were as a child that you've sort of grown into this kind of uh, maven, if you will? Who should, why don't you start? Let me, you go ahead. <laughs> Am I surprised? Yes and no. Uh, I can see the strands that contribute to Malcolm's 
success and to the way he thinks, to the way he expresses himself. Um, but I'm also very surprised at what it is he says and how he says it and at how he, he got there because there is no precedent for that. That's a lovely answer. Um, and Jennifer, did you have a question for Malcolm oh, as yeah, well? She, well, yeah, she asked me whether... Um, I don't really know. You know, I don't... Um, when I think about my family, I think about us as being... We are serial outsiders. So I have a mother who moved from Jamaica to England, which is about as... The cultural distance between those two points is greater than the physical difference between those two points. Um, then um, married an Englishman and then moved to Canada, to and not just to Canada, to a little um, rural corner of Ontario filled with Mennonites. And then I went from there and moved to the United States, to New York City. Um, so I'm, when I say we're serial outsiders, I mean we have replicated the role of outsider over and over again. Um, and um, my writing is the writing of an outsider, Right, it's, a, it's the writing of an observer. And the observer always has an enormous advantage over, the outsider always has an enormous advantage in terms of seeing things in a different way. It's not a, it's not, it doesn't have to do necessarily with any particular gift of um, the outsider, him or herself. It's the gift of the position of being on the outside. You're literally seeing something differently when you look, when you're outside the house than when you're inside the house, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's the... Um, so in that sense, I think I'm, I have been, um, I'm, I'm the lucky recipient of, of um, uh, that series of circumstances, of cultural and environmental circumstances. Um, and um, I think that has an awful lot to, to do with what you're talking about. Wow, that's very interesting. So would you describe yourself as a puzzle or a mystery? <laughs> I, yeah, this is a, a great question. A reference to a, my most recent story, <laughs> where I distinguish between those two. Um, you know, a, uh, a puzzle is a problem that is solved with an additional piece of information. A mystery is a problem where there is too much information. We all would like to be mysteries, um, and so uh, you know, I'll 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 cast my vote there. Whether I actually am or not is another matter entirely. But um, you know, we all flatter ourselves and think that we are enormously complex and can only be understood, you know, through um, great um, efforts of analysis. Um, so. <laughs> That's what I want to be. <laughs> well, interestingly, thank you for calling, Jennifer. Thank you. Um, I came across an interesting quote of yours um, describing your work, and you said that you offer optimism through demystification, mm -hmm. and to understand how things work is to have control over them. And I actually was curious, how important is having control to you? Uh, well, I suppose by control, what I meant there was understanding. So... Um, uh, that what I like to do in my writing is to um, combat the feeling one has of um, of uh, the feeling of bafflement, which I think is a disconcerting feeling of just having no, not even knowing. It's one thing is you know I don't think I can promise in my writing um, the answers to problems, but um, but I can promise something which is probably more important in giving people some sense of. Of, of combating the sense of unease we have with the world, which is I can help people um, to understand how to think about things. Mm -hmm. That's really the that's what we really want. Um, you know, we don't we we don't we're not unhappy with the fact that 
um, the world um, presents lots of different um, difficult-to-answer problems. We're unhappy about the fact that we don't even know how to start to think about a lot of these things. What kind of framework to use? What questions to ask? What um, uh, you know, where this, where the, where the, where the, where the beginning point is, and where the end point is to any kinds of, any kind of process of analysis. That's what my, my writing is really that kind of, intended to be that kind of, um, a roadmap. Um, and um, and and um, and that, and I find those kinds of roadmaps to be enormously um, um, comforting. Thank you. Um, we need to take our, our last break. When we come back from the commercial, I'd like to talk a little bit about how you start to think about things, how you figure out where you're going to begin. Um, I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. And I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guests today are the authors Joyce Gladwell and Malcolm Gladwell. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Strengthening your financial goals. The leader in business talk radio. Voice America Business. More and more business people recognize the importance of spirituality in their work. How do busy professionals discover what rings true for them? Embracing the journey with Karen Humphrey Salad explores what it means to be spiritually fulfilled in business and how to integrate spiritual direction into a career. Expert guests, authors, and inspiring speakers join Karen every week to discuss such issues as honesty, compassion, generosity, ethics, and integrity in the workplace. Take a positive step forward to greater life balance. Tune into Embracing the the journey with Karen Humphrey Salad, broadcasting every Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. Get the competitive edge with your sales and marketing approach by tuning in to Sell More with the Sandler System with host Dave Matson, broadcasting every Monday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Utilizing the Sandler Sales Institute methodologies, Dave shares honest, no-nonsense sales and management techniques that get results while preserving your self-respect. Sell More with the Sandler System is perfect for sales managers and salespeople who sell over the telephone as well as presidents and business owners to manage them. This show offers a comprehensive approach to selling, the mastery of revolutionary techniques, and an entirely new attitude towards the sales and management processes. That's Sell More with the Sandler System with host Dave Matson. Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business, this is Voice America Business. back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.49 Eastern Time and you are listening 
to the Season 4 premiere of Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guests today are authors Joyce Gladwell and Malcolm Gladwell. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for Malcolm or Joyce, this is your last opportunity to call please call 1-866-472-5790. And before the break, Malcolm and Joyce, we were talking a bit about how Malcolm starts thinking about things or how to start thinking about things to share with the world to perhaps help explain some of the unease of the world or what it is like to currently be in the world. And I'm, I'm really curious as to how you go about starting your ideas for your books or for your articles? What is that inner cognition that happens that gives you the sense that this is something that you want to explore, this is something you want to enlighten people about? Um, well, it's not ever... I'm not a great planner in that sense. I, I think things kind of um, emerge and one idea grows out of another. Um, in fact, I've become a, 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 a great foe of... Um, planning in any kind of creative context. Um, and you have to sort of, all of these books and articles, they always emerge where I learn one interesting thing and then I think about it and learn more about it and then um, gradually other ideas begin to attach themselves to that original one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know if there's any other way, at least for me, to to create these kinds of, of um narratives. Um, Well, it's sort of interesting, you know, in the weeks before I do a show with a guest, I sort of immerse myself in their writing and their work and everything that I can possibly discover about them. And in an article in the New York Times, you stated that translating academic work for a popular audience is very explicitly your mission and that you owe an enormous debt to academia. And I was thinking a lot about the work that you do and the sort of variety of articles that you've written, whether it be about dog trainers or basketball or stock trading or facial gestures. And I thought, you know, what you're really talking about here is the inner life of all of these things, either the inner life of, of, of trading or the inner life of dog trainers. And I thought, well, you know, it seems like now that I've read your mother's book, I can see that there's this inner life that she's described that somehow I think has been passed down to you in the work that you do. And that in, in your sort of analytical approach to description, I think my own personal <laughs> analysis here is that you got that from your father and your um, and his, his being a professor of mathematics. But that's just my sort of little um, amateur analysis of, of your family and, and, and the wonderful work that you all do. Um, and before I embarrass myself any further, I'm going to take another call. Andrew from New York, thank you for rescuing me from, from this terrible, terrible diatribe I'm on. Andrew, thank you for calling. No problem. Uh, this question is for Malcolm. Very big fan. Um, read all your books, and I also follow your blog, so I was very happy when you started the blog. So I guess my, my question is all about the blog, because I, I'm not sure... What drives you to start the blog? I mean, because I follow you and I follow other writers like Stephen Johnson that start blogs and keep their ideas moving, which I really appreciate. But my question is, uh, one, what do you find blog-worthy? Is it just whatever pops into your head? And two, I've also noticed that you've had some little tips with other thinkers in the world over the blog entries. So my question is, do you ever censor yourself because of this, or does it inspire you to write more incendiary yeah, I don't know. You know, blogs are strange. I thought I would experiment with it because it's an interesting 
form. And I, the jury's still out on whether, on how useful it is. The, the problem is that the, that the commenters, you, know, you write something and your comments are evenly divided between um, people who are saying interesting things and you're glad you, you're glad they weighed in and you learned something, and people who are simply nasty. Um, and I, I'm so shocked by the level of nastiness um, and that I don't really know what to do. I'm not comfortable in a world where people are, are being, um, are, are that way. And um, it kind of ruins the experience in a certain way um, to kind of expose yourself to. So when I, w I had a long series of blog entries about, uh, about racism and um, made in passing the observation that I think those who um, who make claims about the relative intelligence, genetic intelligence of various races, um, are being at the very least intellectually re reckless and at the most racist. You know, 99% of America agrees with me, but the 1% who doesn't, you know, showed up on my blog. <laughs> you know, it's a strange thing. And if all I'm doing is attracting a kind of lunatic fringe, on when I write about topics like that, there's no, it's not my intent to provide a forum for what I think of as, and so I, I, I have to say, it's a, it's both the best and the worst of what the internet has to offer, you know, it's, it's a wonderful open playing field, um, uh, but it also is, um, you know, sometimes barriers to entry are a good thing, and then they, that they keep um, people who are, um, you know, I just think have um, repugnant um, ideas. It keeps them um, keeps them out. Um, so, I, like I say, I'm profoundly. It's been a, an interesting, but am, um, I am ambivalent um, about um, about whether it's been useful. You gonna keep doing it? Uh, I might. It's unclear. Um, like I say, I'm still trying to figure out what the right tone is and what the right things. Maybe if I only talk about sports, I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it depends on if you talk about the Knicks. Um, well, thank you. Thank you for calling, Andrew, thank from you. New York. I really appreciate it. Um, it's interesting because I, I feel like the blog, the blog phenomena is one that has sort of the best of times and the worst of times represented in it. You have a certain accountability that you keep, that people must be kept to in terms of what the information that they're putting out is and, and the um, sincerity, the accuracy of, of that. But then you, you get people that I think have this sudden um, ability to communicate to a group of people that have really no interest in hearing what they specifically have to say. And mm -hmm. it's very hard to edit mm -hmm. that out without it looking at, like it's really heavy-handed or forced in some way. It'll be really interesting to see what and how the blog world evolves over the next Mm -hmm. uh, decade or so. Y y y the point that brings up, and it takes us me back to um, um, to the discussion where we started when we were talking about books um, and my mother's book and things like that, is that there's something to be said for constraints. Um, what a book represents is um, is com is communication within a very strict set of constraints. Um, we we give you the book. You know, we have designed it the way we want to design it. We have. Um, you know, put it in the context we want to put it in, and we have labored over the words and edited and refined, and and what you get is a complete thought. You know, um, uh, and there, uh, that that is the, where the power of that particular um, uh, form of expression comes from, which is all of the all of the um, limitations on it. The fact it's a it's a it's a complete finished 
um, product. It's a work of art. Yeah, it's a on work its of best art. day. Yeah, on its best day, and and that um, you know the the internet is the blogs are the antithesis of that, and um, that's what I think. That's why I think we're still trying to work out what their um, what their value is and mm-hmm. what their what the best way to use them are. Well, fortunately, we have books like yours and your mother's. Um, I'd like to thank you both very much for joining me on the show today. We've come to the end of our broadcast. Um, so I'd like to, to really to say how much I appreciate both you and Joyce uh, for being on the show. I'd also like to give a very special thanks to our sponsor, Adobe, to Brian Travis and Ruben Colomb at Voice America, and Lisa Grant and Jen Simon at Sterling. Joining me next week on Design Matters is author Seth Godin. Thank you for listening, and please remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.